You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So in preparing for our time uh, this, this morning, I met with um, one of my mentors. He's really been almost a lifelong mentor for me. He and I get together every three to four months, and he's a man who's had considerable influence in my life. He has mentored me through literally every stage of my married life. I, I began meeting with him and spending time with him when Jamie and I first got married. So he has been with me through us having kids and raising those kids, and now in the season where we're launching those, those kids. And uh, it's just been rich and, and good. He's a man who has been a, a lead pastor himself. He's led in, in many other arenas as well. And he's just seasoned with wisdom, a couple life stages ahead of me. I just, I so value and, and love my friendship with this man and his impact on my life. When we met this last week, though, he told me about something that happened this year with the, with the Portland Marathon. And for those of you who don't know, this happens every October, and I'm told that when it took place this last month, it was on one of the rainiest days of the month. I mean, people just got soaked, and people actually paid to do this. <laughs> 8,000 of them you know, to run the Portland Marathon. And my friend is one of those. He's run multiple marathons, and he does the Portland Marathon every year. But something unique happened this year. When they released the runners to run, as you can see in that picture there, that's a lot of people. And you can't start 8,000 people all at the same time, right? So they launch them with what's called corrals. Okay, sounds like cattle to me, but... They, they launch him in these corrals of several hundred people. And he was, I think, in the third corral, one of, one of the ones towards the front. And the corral ahead of him was out of sight. They had run on, and they, they couldn't see them ahead of him. And my friend um, was about the third or fourth person out of all these hundreds of people in the, the corral that followed. So he's well towards the front, but they don't have any other runners in front of them. So the lead guy of his corral missed the turn for the course. And so everyone in his corral and several corrals after ran the wrong course for the Portland Marathon and they added half a mile to the marathon. Now that may not sound like a very big deal, but the Portland Marathon is one of those qualifying marathons for the Boston Marathon. And there were a number of people who failed to qualify for Boston because they ran the wrong course. And if you will go to the Portland Marathon website, which, which I did, and look at some of the blogs initially when this happened, and you know it's understandable, but they kind of downplayed it and said it didn't affect that many people. Well, really? Have you read the comments? Have you read the blogs? And my friend said, oh, it, it affected thousands of people, not just a handful. And I thought, wow, is that, is that ever an example and a picture negatively of where we're going to go today and in the passage that, that we're going to look at today and the words of Jesus that we're going to look at today. Because we see from that example one person who affects the lives of thousands of people. How would you like to be a person who affects the lives of thousands of people for Jesus over the course of your lifetime? If you want to do that, This passage today is going to tell us how we can significantly impact and affect lives for the kingdom of God. And it comes from how we love God and how we love people. 
Because you see, in our culture, our culture defines love very differently than how God defines love and what that really means. And in the manner and the way in which Jesus will define what it means to love God today actually tells us how to love God and instructs us in how to love other people. So if you have a Bible, please open to Mark chapter 12. This is going to be verses 28 through 34. And we'll start here and then we'll jump backwards here for a little context. But let's start here. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, what is the most important? Basically, Jesus, what's the bottom line? Now, a little context here for those of you who weren't here last week. Last week, we looked at the earlier part of this passage where now the religious leaders are trying to entrap Jesus. They have decided they're going to try to take his life, and in the course and process of that happening, now they're going to try to discredit him and, and to take him out of the picture one way or the other. And the first group that makes a run at him are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, knew the word of God, and it literally says in the passage, as Matt Patrick helped us see this last week, that they were hunting Jesus. They were looking to catch him and entrap him. So they come to him with this question about a tax that everyone had to pay and that everyone hated to pay. And, and they try to entrap them. And Jesus calls them on it, but then gives them an answer that absolutely blows them away. And it's a very famous line out of Scripture. A number of people are familiar with it. But he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. First trap, empty. So the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders, make a run at Jesus. And the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. They rejected the oral tradition, and they didn't buy into the rest. So they come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection, but that really wasn't the question, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And as Matt again helped us see last week, there was a presumption, a presupposition that they were coming to him with, hoping to discredit him. And do you remember what Jesus said? I mean, it's just, it is really remarkable. And if you were laughing last week, my voice was probably one of the loudest laughs you heard because Matt said the Sadducees would, were akin to people who knew the Bible, who taught the Bible, who would go around wearing shirts that said, hashtag Moses only, right? Remember that? And what does Jesus say in his response to them? Have you ever read Moses? Well, Really? And then he shows them that they're not just a little off, they are badly off. Because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And he thoroughly ties them into knots and exposes really their, not only their error, but their hypocrisy in what they're trying to do. So what's happening today is the third attempt to try to trap Jesus. In the parallel account to this in Matthew 22, Matthew tells us that this teacher of the law who came to Jesus was another member of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees make a run, the Sadducees make a run at Jesus, and now a teacher of the law is going to make a run at Jesus. And here are some of the significant issues with this. Number one, this was a person who by profession was a lawyer. Teacher of the law or scribe, as it is in other translations, is describing a profession. You were a lawyer. This was truly an expert in the law. If they were wearing a t-shirt of the day, it would say, hashtag Moses only, ask me. Because they would have the answer. 
Because if you do a little math and you do a little homework, the first five books of the Bible, which we know as the Pentateuch, also known as the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are 613 commandments in those five books. 248 positive, 365 negative. At the time of Jesus, there was an oral tradition that was just about at the time it was going to be written down called the Mishnah that added 1,500 1500 other additional commandments to clarify those other 613. So you needed someone like a teacher of the law who was an expert who could tell you which commands were more important than the others. But this is a thinly veiled trap. Once again, they are looking to discredit Jesus. And so that's the context for what we're reading. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Well said, teacher. Jesus, you get a gold star. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions because the third trap had sprung and once again It was empty. So let's work our way back through this passage a little bit. So Jesus answers him with what was known and is known as the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear. Every Jew would start their prayer time with this prayer every day. Every synagogue service today starts with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. And then it's subdivided here. But Jesus does something interesting because if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is where this is found, he adds mind to this. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and says, this is it. But he also goes to Leviticus 19 and says, love your neighbor as yourself. He fuses these two together. So in how Jesus describes what it means to love God, it actually helps us understand and apply and live out exactly what he's asking us to do. So let's unpack this together. And this is in your sermon notes. But when he says heart, this is what he means. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is the command center of your being. This is the seat and center of what makes you and you. The command center for your feelings, emotions, desires. In our culture, does our culture ever tell us to follow our hearts? Yes. Yes. All the time we are told, follow your heart. Or to put it another way, the heart wants what the heart wants. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, let's think about that for a minute. I was watching an episode of NCIS recently, and in the storyline, one of the main characters, she fell in love with this guy who she was attracted to and knew uh, about three days, and she ended up having sex with him and sleeping with him. And by the end of the show... They were no longer an item. 
and he had left her. He got what he wanted, he used her, and really she was using him as well, but he, he left her. And, and do we not see this as an example of love in our culture? Hook up, shack up, break up, right? But that is portrayed as, as love. And in the same episode, this young man who was also counseled to follow his heart, the heart wants what the heart wants, was struggling with feelings of same-sex attraction and wrestling with that. And by the way, if you struggle with same-sex attraction feelings, it does not make you a homosexual and it does not make you a lesbian. But in our culture, where sexual identity is elevated to be your highest identity, this is what he buys into. And so he follows his heart. And ironically, by the end of the show, he is more confused and in a more difficult place than when he started. Both examples of following a broken heart, a sinful heart. Because we all start out in the same place apart from Jesus Christ. We, we have sinful hearts. Because we are inclined, left to our own, to be self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed, and to default to making life all about us. It's not that there isn't any good in us, because everyone's made in the image of God. There's good in everybody, whether they know God or not. But we all start out in the, in the same place. So the idea is not to necessarily follow your heart. In fact, Scripture says in Proverbs 4 that we are to guard our heart and to guide our heart. And this is so fundamental because your heart is what defines you. And as Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, it's also what can defile you. And that's why it's so important that we have a new heart. Every person you saw up here who got baptized, we are celebrating the reality that they haven't joined a religion, but they have entered into a life-changing relationship with the one true God through his son Jesus Christ because they have been given a new heart. The core of what makes them them has changed and been transformed by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ through entering into relationship with him. That's why it's so fundamental that you have a new heart. It is the command center for your life. So therefore, love is more than what you feel or even what you have or what you do. It comes from the heart. But that's not the only idea of what it means to love. Jesus describes our power source, the source of our vitality. This word is translated in other places in the New Testament as life. But your soul really is your, it's your life source. It's your power source. It's the source of your, your vitality. It works with your heart to bind your attitudes, motives, values together. And then there's our mind, your perception, reflection that directs your opinions and, and, and judgment. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a person thinks, so they are, which is another way of saying from right thinking comes right living. And then there's this, your strength. This means your physical capacities, but it also means your possessions, the things you have, the resources God's given you. We'll see this next week when Gary Bershers takes us into the next part of this passage because 
we'll have this example of a widow who, give, who gives all she had as an act of worship to God. And that is, a, that is a sterling example of someone who is loving God with all their strength by, by giving him what she has. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about loving God. And it's one of the many reasons why Jesus talked more about possessions and stuff and money, more than heaven and hell, more than um, relationships, more than divorce, you, you name it. He talked about that more than anything else because what you do with your resources, what I do with mine, shows what we love. And it shows the condition of our heart. That's why we talk about our resources here so much at Grace. Because what you love will be reflected on what you spend your money, where you invest your time, what you give relationally. Okay? That's a big ask, to love God that way. But it doesn't stop there. He says we are to love our neighbor this way. And interestingly, he doesn't say these are two commands. He puts this under the umbrella of one. Because there, there is a necessary order here. You cannot love neighbor the way God wants you and calls you to love them unless you love God and God has loved you prior to that. One fuels the other. One drives the other. They're, they're inseparable. And then this incredibly remarkable statement. You have to understand, here is this scribe, this teacher of the law, where all these conversations are taking place, these, these traps that keep getting set for Jesus, all this dialogue is taking place somewhere in the temple there, probably in the outer courts, we don't know, but the temple's right there. So here's all these sacrifices and burnt offerings and all this stuff is going on around him. And this teacher of the law rightly says, this is more important than this. Huge statement for him to get that. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But it does beg the question, why wasn't he in the kingdom of God? Close, but not quite there. And the trap comes up empty a third time, and at that point, they're not going to try to trap him anymore. But it begs the question, so why, why isn't this, this guy in the kingdom? Well, could it be because of how Jesus defines what loving God means? Why would Jesus go to the point, why does the Shema, the hearing, go to the point of saying we must love God with our heart, with our soul? Jesus added mind. He's God. He gets to do that, mind. But the Shema and Jesus go on to say strength. Why does God bifurcate, there's your new big word for the day, bifurcate, separate, make a distinction between all of that that makes us us. Because God wants all of you. God wants all of me. Unfortunately, one of the ways we use the word believe in our culture, and, and this really has significance when we're talking about God, is you will rub shoulders with and talk to people all the time who say, oh yeah, I believe in God, really. How do you live your life? What do you think about where are your resources going? What are you thinking about? What are your motives? What are your values? 
Because all those indicate love for God as well. You see, when belief is used in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, it always carries the idea of action. It's more than just mental assent. So let's go back to our question. Why was it that this scribe, this teacher of the law, was near the kingdom, but not in it? Could it be that he wasn't loving God with all of him? He clearly was loving God with his mind. He understood it up here, but did he get it here? Evidently not. So, so what does it tangibly, practically mean to love, to love God? And how in the world do you do that? How do you love God? Like that? That's a big ask. The biggest of asks, because he's asking for your whole life. Well, once again, as we've talked about, when we see something in the New Testament that is being referenced from the Old Testament, we have to go back to the Old Testament and to see the context and to see why is Jesus, why is one of the apostles, why are one of the gospel writers, why are one of the New Testament writers referencing this verse? So if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we read just a chapter before, God is talking about his incredible love for his people and what did he do for them? It says there that he led them out of Egypt. When they were enslaved and discarded and devalued, he emancipated them. He freed them. He blessed them. He honored his promises to them. He brings them to a land that is now going to be their very own. He gives them peace. He gives them identity. He gives them his presence. He profoundly blesses them. And then he asks them, to love him the way he has loved them. Why do you love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? Because of how he has loved you. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were God's enemy, he loved you. Why do you love God this way? Because he has first loved you. We talk about this reality over and over again. The gospel is always a response to what God has done for you. Why do you forgive someone who doesn't deserve to be forgiven? Didn't God forgive you? Why do you love someone who is so incredibly hard to love? Doesn't God love you? Why do you serve someone who doesn't deserve to be served? Hasn't Jesus served you? How can God ask us to love him? Because he first loved us. He loves us with all of himself. And so as a worship response, he asks us to love him with all of us. So how do you do that? Well, there's two schools of thought out there, really. One school of thought is this. Let go and let God. Love God through the power that he gives you through the Holy Spirit. That's all there is to it. Just, just love God with, with the power that he's given you. There's another school of thought that says, love God by trying harder. I mean, you've, you've got to put some effort into it. You've got to cooperate with God's work in your life. You know, there isn't a cruise control for this. So 
which one's right? And the answer? Yes. Yes. Both are taught explicitly and implicitly in God's word. I'll show you one place where they're encapsulated. And it's in Second Peter. Look at this with me. His divine what? Power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. But what does it go on to say a couple verses later? For this reason, make what? Every effort to add your faith, goodness, and the goodness knowledge. This is a fusion of two realities. You want to love God the way he's loved you, and in a second we'll look at loving other people the way he calls you to love them? Number one, you have to remember and recognize the reality that if you know Jesus Christ, if you've received him into your life, He lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is not Casper the ghost. He is the presence, the very presence of God in your life and he is within you. And he empowers you to live the very life that he calls you to live and it's a good life and it is a life of blessing and promise and reward. But you've got to cooperate. You have to be willing to follow when he leads. It takes effort. Sometimes it's really hard. There's a reason why scripture talks about that if you want to be mature in Christ, you got to persevere. It's a both and, right? The two come together. But the reality is, and here it comes, you can live the life that God calls you to. You can love him, the way he asks you to love him and follow him, and you can love others the way he asks you to love others because this is a big ask. Love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who's mine? Well, let's take this for a test drive. Let's start literally. Who lives next to you? Who's across the street, across the fence, next door? Who lives above you in the apartment or lives beside you in the townhouse? That's your neighbor. Do you know them? Do you even know their name? Because if your neighborhood's like mine, whether you live in a house, apartment, whatever, nine months out of the year, the car drives into the driveway, the garage goes up, in goes the car, the garage goes down. That's it. Where'd they go? Oh, the garage opens up. Out comes the car. Garage goes down. Off they go. Where'd they go? Who are they? Does anyone live in these houses? We've lived in our neighborhood a little over 11 and a half years now, and it's taken a lot of years to get to know our neighbors, and it didn't just happen. When our kids were were real little when we first moved here, we decided we would initiate getting to know our neighbors. So every Christmas we we make something or put something together and we take it around to all the neighbors, even the neighbors who don't like us. So when you show up on their porch with cute little kids, I mean, who's going to tell cute little kids to go away, right? It was was beautiful. And so (laughs) we established relationships with all of our neighbors. But it took time. 
But how do you love someone the way God calls you to love them if you don't know them? You can. You can love someone you don't know. But how much more fully can you love someone when you actually know them and have some kind of connection to them in their life? And as a result of of just loving our neighbors, you know, it wasn't long ago, not many years ago, that our neighbor across the street showed up on our doorstep in tears because her brother had just been diagnosed with cancer. And she knew we were Jesus followers, and so she came to pray with us and to tell us. And then when her brother passed away, I was the one who did his graveside service at Willamette National. Huge privilege. All because we know our neighbors. But it goes deeper than that. It's not just your little neighbor. Do do you remember, for those of you who know your Bibles, what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Do you realize how high the bar just went in defining neighbor at that point? Who's your neighbor? Everybody. Everybody. And let's tease that out the way Jesus did. So we all have a propensity to gravitate towards, to spend time with, to go to, to love people who think like us, act like us, dress like us, are the same ethnicity as us, um, like the same teams as us, um, have the same political interests that we do, and on it goes. And Jesus said, yes, and everybody else. And in the example of the Good Samaritan, which unfortunately we just don't have time to unpack this, but in that example, Jesus incredibly amplified what that means because he drew the picture of two people who are enemies, which in our day and age would probably be equivalent to an ISIS soldier helping a Jew who had just been beat up by a bunch of thugs because that was the relationship, roughly, Samaritans to Jews in the example that Jesus talked about. So who are we called to love? The people you don't like. The people who are hard to love. The people who have it out for you. Which wisdom required to be sure, but... That that is the bottom line. Do you understand the significance of that? What does every other religion, every other belief system say you are to do to your enemy? Not to love them. That is a distinctive of Christianity. Only Christianity says you love that person, not for the credit you'll get, not for what other people will think, not based on how they will respond to you, You love them because God has loved you. Because of what God has done for you. And this will be put to the test every day. For some of you, it's coming. Because you know what happens next week? Thanksgiving. (laughs) Who do you spend time with on Thanksgiving? Who do you spend time with at Christmas time and holidays? I absolutely believe this. If you can live out the gospel in your family, you can do it anywhere. (laughs) Really. How will you love the person who despite the years you have been a member of the family, they don't accept you? 
How do you love the person who doesn't respect you? How do you love the person who finds amazing ways to belittle you or criticize you or devalue you? How do you love the person who did that to you and there's never been a reconciliation of relationship? Or how do you love the person who's just difficult to be around? That's hard. There's no two ways about it. But possible. Listen very carefully to the word of God today. You can do this. Regardless of how they respond. Regardless of what other people think. Regardless of the results that happen. You can love even your enemies. How in the world? Because God first loved you. And the very life he calls you to, he empowers you to be able to live out. And he wants to bless you. God wants to bless your life. No one wants to bless you more than God. I hope you believe that because that is your reality and that is what the word of God says regardless of what anyone else says. So will you? Will you love God the way he's loved you? Will you love your neighbor the way he calls you to? Because you can. And if you will, you will be blessed. And if you want to distill the Bible according to Jesus down to the bottom line, this is the bottom line. This is your litmus test This is your heart test. This is how you evaluate where you're at in your life. Do you love God? Do you love other people? And you can. And if you will, you will be blessed. God, I thank you that the very life you call us to is the life you really do empower us to live. Lord, so many times it's easy to reduce living out the spirit-led life by just trying harder. Lord, so many times it's not about trying harder. It's about believing more. So would you help us to take you at your word this morning? Lord, as we prepare to worship you, as as we sing a song about 10,000 reasons, to love you and worship you. Lord, would you just remind us of one this morning. I pray for each person here that they would think back over their life and they would remember what life was like without you and that you would remind them now of what they have in you. How have you changed their life? What have you done for them? Would they take that reason and now sing to you? out of gratefulness for your grace and truth. We love you, Jesus, and we do praise and worship you now in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.